Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. We like to tie together Advent and Lent here at Crozet United Methodist Church. And so uh, if you go back, you'll remember that our Advent theme was the coming of the Messiah, where we explored the four messianic titles that are proclaimed in the prophet Isaiah. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But now we're going to be discussing the arrival of the Messiah. Now that Christ is incarnate in Jesus, and we are now working our way through the final years of his life, his earthly ministry, until his triumphant arrival in the holy city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so you kind of see us moving toward that in our graphic, which, by the way, are made and housed by one of our church members, and we're so richly blessed there. But I know that for some of you, uh, you are perplexed by the scripture that I read to you, and you are pondering why I am doing an Advent text in Lent. And that is because we are going to be exploring the messianic titles of the New Testament. And we're going to begin with the title, Son of God. Now, it's something that we hear a lot, but what are the nuances of it? What does it mean? It is a title that is not only given to Jesus, but it's a title that he claims and utilizes in his own ministry. In all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in numerous epistles and letters, and of course, in the book of Revelation, which closes out our canon of scripture. And so this morning, we have the opportunity to hear the archangel Gabriel proclaiming that Mary, at the young age, somewhere between 12 and 16, is about to bear the Christ child to the world, and that this child, unlike any other child, will be holy, will be the Son of God. That's what the title means. We have vestiges of this truth in our worship. For instance, both of the tall candles on our altar symbolize the dual nature of Jesus, both fully human and fully divine. Fully God, fully human, together. 100% human, 100% divine, which at some point, some confirmand always goes, that's 200%, yes it is, God can do whatever God wants, and God wants to be fully God and yet fully human. Not half and half, not all God and merely appearing human, not human and then receiving the Holy Spirit to be quasi-divine, a demigod. Jesus is the incarnation of God, fully God and yet fully human. And this is important because as we are moving through Lent and we're coming to Holy Week, which will be here before we know it, one of the things that is so emphatic about Lent and getting to the Easter celebration is that we have to go through the cross of Good Friday. And this title, Son of God, comes into play in Holy Week in a whole different way than it was used in Jesus' earthly ministry or even at the proclamation of his inception. And that is that here, Mary, who is a human being just like all of us, 
is being told by a divine visitor, the Archangel Gabriel, that she is about to have a child. Now, women, no matter how old they were in that society, were anxious to have their first child. They were hoping it would be a male. That was the expectation of not only their families, but the culture is that they would have a male. And Mary's been told, favored are you. You will have a child. It will be a son, and you will name him Jesus. To which Mary goes, how is that possible? I am a virgin. I have never had sexual relations. And at this time, she's not even married. And so the angel says, you need not worry about this because in order for this child to be whom God has declared the child will be, the child needs to be divine. And that will happen by the Holy Spirit overshadowing you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the child that is conceived when that happens will be divine. And that is where we get the title that Gabriel actually concludes our scripture today with, Son of God. Now, as Trinitarian Christians, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But this is a very specific and important nuance. If you've ever had the desire to cry out to God or to offer a prayer of petition or even a prayer of gratitude, then you know that the title that you use matters, right? When I was growing up with my sister, if you wanted something from our parents, you would refer to them as mommy dearest or my beloved father. You know, if one of us was antagonizing the other, you would usually hear mom, dad, right? You'd hear that. And then occasionally, you'd be around other family members who didn't have the parental relationship with our parents, and they'd be like, you know, Vicky or Gary, and you were like, who? Right? So names are important. Titles are important. They invoke different things. My child learned this very quickly because once he started attending the preschool that was in my church after he graduated from infant care, a lot of the teachers found it really intriguing that when they talked about Pastor Sarah, he'd go, that's not Pastor Sarah, that's my mom. <laughs> you can be both. But you're incarnate differently as Pastor Sarah than you are as mom. I'm probably more friendly as Pastor Sarah than I am as mom, if we're quite honest. And so these titles are meaningful. They have purpose. And they're conveying a deep theology. Sometimes we don't really think about that. Jesus is Son of God. Yes, we hear it. It's in our liturgy. It's in our hymns. It's part of our prayers. It's certainly in Scripture. But what does it mean for us? What is the purpose of knowing that title? And the title means this, that we have an incredible relationship that is given to us because Jesus is the Son of God. Almost no religion in the world, except perhaps Hinduism, makes this claim that there is a fully divine and fully human incarnation of their God. Almost no religion. If you go back to some of the oldest religious expressions outside of shamanistic tradition within certain social circles and cultures and and ancient history, what you find is that not even Confucius in Confucianism or Mencius, his disciple, not even Lao Tzu or Xuanza of the Taoist tradition would claim to be God. They don't claim divinity. In fact, not even the Buddha, Shakyamuni, claims to be God, which can be confusing when you see how people venerate the Buddha, but no, he did not claim to be a deity. 
And even if you look at the Abrahamic faiths, our siblings in faith of Judaism and Islam, what you find is that some of their greatest names and their paragons in their faith don't claim to be divine. For instance, nobody gets confused about whether or not Moses is divine. He's clearly not. <laughs> Does a lot of things that are not okay. And if you ever question whether or not Moses is divine or not, when you get to the end of Numbers, it's very clear that he's made God angry and he's not going into the promised land, and that will clear that up for you rather quickly. But it's this tr the same is true throughout Judaism. Elijah, Elisha, they are not divine either. The Spirit of the Lord is upon them to preach and to proclaim the word of God, but they are not actually being transformed in their personhood into divinity. And it's temporary. It comes upon them and then it will leave. Then you get Islam, and even the prophet Muhammad does not claim to be divine, even though the same archangel Gabriel shows up to speak to Muhammad. Muhammad does not claim divinity. Now, earlier I pulled apart Islam for you. I mean, Islam, I pulled apart Hinduism for you because Hinduism is the one where it gets a little sticky and it might actually be that there's more similarity between Christ and Krishna than we would expect. Although there is a distinction. So in Hinduism, gods are able to come to earth in some kind of mortal form known as avatars. And in the case of Vishnu, who is the sustaining god of the Hindu Trimurti, their trilogy of gods who create, sustain, and then destroy and recreate, what you find is that Vishnu has an avatar that is especially beloved within Hinduism and India. And that avatar is Krishna. Krishna is one avatar shown in human form, but Krishna is not just like you and me. And lest you would forget that, most depictions of Krishna will show that he is blue, just that you will never forget. I mean, his skin is blue, like blue, blue, like darker than uh, North Carolina blue, but slightly lighter than Duke blue, like blue, blue. And so you wouldn't look at it and go, that's a fully human. No, of course not. It is Krishna. And Krishna will not stay in that. Krishna will be transformed back into Vishnu or the next avatar. However, from his birth, Jesus will maintain the human form will maintain that form, will have it upon the cross when he dies. It will be that form that is resurrected on Easter morning. It'll be that form complete with the scars and the hands and the feet and the side that Jesus will reveal to his apostles to show them that he is bodily resurrected and that he has been returned to them conquering death. It is important for us to remember that. Now, throughout the years, Christianity has had an internal argument about whether or not Jesus was always divine. Well, no, Jesus has a beginning. We celebrate that at Christmas. But God the Son is eternal. Hence, the Gospel account of John likes to open up with, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That there is something eternal even in the Son of God and that that was what was brought forth in human form at the first Christmas. So this is important to us though, because while there are plenty of sentiments out in Christendom that may or may not be biblically founded, one of the things that you hear a lot is that humanity, humankind, were made to worship. There's even a contemporary Christian song that says that, we were made to worship. Well, if you were with us last week, then you know that 
we were made for whatever reason, but worship wasn't even part of the dialogue in Genesis, <laughs> wasn't even part of it. So why were we made? Why are we here? What is the purpose of having the Son of God come to us? Why? And I and a lot of people will argue that it's relationship. We were created to be in relationship. The story that we, that we explored last week about the Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden and that fruit that nobody's supposed to touch or eat, that fruit, you'll notice that the catalyst for the revelation that they had eaten the fruit was when God came to walk in the garden and wanted to be with them. Where are you? God wanted to be in relationship with them, coming to them, walking in their world that they might know how beloved they are. That is the relationship that God is giving to us, to be in that relationship. And as Christians, we struggle with this because we're not Adam and Eve, and we can't see God in whatever form that was in. And sometimes it seems like God is so ethereal and otherworldly, it's hard to grasp anything, but we see a lot of people. And we have them close to us. But here is the goodness of God. We are also meant to be in relationship with one another. Both the first and second creation story of Genesis reveal this. We were made to be in relationship with one another, not just with our parents or our children or our siblings or our extended family through whom we share our genetic code. We are meant to be in relationship with our friends, with our neighbors, with those who are in need, with those who are our siblings in faith. We are meant to have all kinds of beautiful, fruitful relationships. And those relationships are to echo to have a ripple effect of the relationship that we have with God. That is made possible for us through Jesus being the Son of God. Now, how is that possible? How does Jesus give us that opportunity? Because if you've ever had a relationship with another human being that went wrong, then you know how hard it is to get it to come back to being right. It's not easy. It is work and it is struggle and sometimes it will never be what it was before. And at Lent, when I opened up the worship service for Ash Wednesday, I also included a liturgy that has been not only just a part of the United Methodist Church, but the Wesleyan tradition that it received from the Anglican tradition that then traces itself back to the Catholic tradition about Lent being a time of preparation, hence the Lentadoodles, right? Getting our children prepared through prayer to grow in their faith. And again, Lent is an opportunity for us, except on Ash Wednesday, I don't know if you've heard a lot of this, but people kind of go around and they'll ask each other, what are you giving up for Lent? It's all over social media. I even heard newscasters who don't say anything about Jesus talking about what they were giving up for Lent. And so what you get is a lot of people who want to proclaim what they are abstaining from during Lent. Usually it goes something like this. I'm giving up coffee or I'm giving up chocolate. And that usually makes people very grumpy. And so what you end up getting is that the world knows it is Lent because there are a lot of grumpy, uncaffeinated Christians in the world. And that is not exactly how we are to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, right? How do you know Jesus is real? There are a lot of angry Christians until Easter. That's not how we're supposed to be. And I believe that one of the great ways for us to enter into Lent is to take something on. 
Now, our Catholic siblings in faith, they actually have as one of their symbols of their Lenten observance is sacrifice. And so they are actually by papal bull, uh, papal order, to give up something. And then they have a very specific way that they handle it. But that is their tradition. Now you can give something up. However, I will tell you that in the larger Christendom tradition, if you give something up, then the time and the money that you would have invested into that are supposed to be invested into something for God. You don't just give up caffeine and get to grumble. It's not that. But instead, all the money that you would have spent on coffee, you then give to a mission or a ministry of the church. And then you take the time that you would have been drinking coffee and you read a devotion or you do spiritual journaling or you pray or you read scripture. Those sort of things. You engage in something. You don't just suffer. Instead, you are supposed to be directing that energy into something fruitful. However, for most of us, we probably shouldn't give up coffee. And maybe we shouldn't you know, try to struggle by not having something that brings us joy. Instead, this is a perfect opportunity to take something on. And that's what the early Christians did. Lent is not in the Bible, which is why there are Christian denominations that don't observe Lent. But Lent is a part of Christian tradition. It didn't take very long for the early Christians to say, Easter is so important that we should get ready for it. Most Christians understand that Advent is us getting ready for Christmas, but even more important is us getting ready for Easter. Easter changed the day that all Christians worship. We don't worship on the Sabbath of sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, like our Jewish siblings in faith. Instead, we worship on Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That is now the Lord's day. And so if we're going to reorient all of our worship life around Easter, we should get ready for it. We should absolutely prepare ourselves. But what are we preparing? We're preparing ourselves for a better relationship. And the Son of God says it's never too late. Now, if you live in this world, people will tell you it's too late. You missed the mark, right? In fact, this evening, I will be going to the Roslyn Retreat Center in Richmond and joining together with the other members of the Board of Ordained Ministry as we do provisional interviews. These are those people who are ready to enter into that final waiting period before they're ordained, that kind of probationary period that we call commissioning. And so these people are willing to go into this final period that will last three years, this, at least three years, the same number of years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And they will go into this period, and at the end, they will come back to us for ordination interviews, and they will share in their papers and in their worship and in their interviews what they have done to be fruitful for God, how their gifts and their ministry have borne fruit. And so, so this is a big deal this week when we interview these provisionals, but it's not always easy to go before a bunch of people and be interviewed and write papers and film worship and preach and then give them a, a manuscript of your sermon. And so a lot of times they come before us and sometimes the answer is not yet. Not no, just not yet. There's still some things you need to work on. And the other thing is that some of them don't come before us on time at all because they were late submitting their papers. And if you are one day late submitting your papers, you have to wait till next year. So timeliness is important. You can't be a day late on Easter. You have to be on time. So at some point we have to draw a line. But I can tell you this, one of the most beautiful things is it's never too late for us as Christians. Never. God is more graceful than the Board of Ordained Ministry in this. 
God says to you, it doesn't matter if you are on your deathbed. It is not too late. It is never too late. And that's a beautiful thing because some of us are chronically late. Others of us are so terrified of being late that we're chronically overly early. But in Christ, we are never too late. We are never too early. We are on time. And one of the most beautiful things about the Wesleyan tradition that is manifest here in United Methodism is that we don't all have to be the same. Diversity is beautiful. We can all say, in this Lent, we are all going to do different things. Some of you might choose to carve out a piece of your day and read a new devotion. For instance, we just got in our new um, upper room devotionals in the back, and somebody might add that to their current spiritual disciplines. Somebody might carve out some time to read a chapter a day or more from one of the gospel accounts so that they can get to Easter in the scriptures by the time we get to Easter in the liturgical calendar. Somebody might choose to wake up early or stay up a little late in order to have a a special devoted prayer time. Maybe buying a prayer book and reading one of those prayers every day. The options are limitless for you. Because as Methodists, what we say is we're all going to do things a little differently, and we might even do different things, but we all agree to come back here and meet at Easter. We're going to come back and meet together. And as long as we come back together in Christ, then every path is valid. Every choice was good and right and joyful. And so some of us will have a very long, meandering walk, and some of us will get straight to Easter. But that's okay, because your walk is what you need it to be, and that's fine. Now, every year, there's all kinds of Lenten disciplines that come up, and quite a few times in my life, I have, for reasons that only God will actually ever understand, I took up journaling. I don't like to journal. There's something innately wrong in me that is OCD about journaling, right? I feel like I have to write it. You can't type it. It doesn't feel spiritual when you're like, click, 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 click. So I have to write it. But then I have the problem of, you know, if there's a misspelling, right? Or if you start to write something and you read it and you're like, oh, that's terrible. But I had to write it in ink, so it doesn't look really good. Heaven forbid I have to scratch something out. My entire journal is ruined. I just, it just doesn't sit right with me. And then the worst part is, one day I was writing and I was good. I was like six days into Lent and I hadn't messed up my journal yet. And I was six days into Lent and my pen ran out of ink halfway through the page. And I was like, it's over. Lent is over. I can never, this is over. I will never be able to do this again. Journaling is not a spiritual gift for me, but for other people it is. And let me tell you why it's a good and right and joyful thing for some. Because I have 17 leather-bound volumes of the writings of John Wesley, one of the first Methodists from Oxford, England, in my office. And throughout the course of my life and my ministry, I have periodically opened up one of those volumes, and I have read not only his insight and his theology or his response to scripture, but I've read about his struggles. Because he was honest in his writing about, you know, I thought I had assurance, but now I lost it. And how do I find it again? He was honest about, I went out into the field today and I preached and I felt like nobody heard me. Do I go out and do it again tomorrow? He was wrestling with all the same things that we as Christians wrestle with. Now, it's also nice to go in there and read where he's cataloged his failures, right? One of the things that he did one time was he was trying to make sure that he spent every day in accordance with the will of God. Not an easy feat. 
And so he got up that morning and he started to cast lots. And casting lots is kind of like, you know, kind of drawing out what it is that I'm going to do. Well, apparently he didn't like his options because he kept casting lots all day and that was his journal entry. I was casting lots to see what I should do and I spent all day casting lots. Which I'm pretty sure is not what God would have wanted. But you know what? Nice try, John. You know, it's again, it's the opportunity to explore your gifts. Sometimes you would never know what your gifts are or what you can give to Christendom as your legacy if you don't try something new. You are not going to get a bunch of leather-bound journals from Sarah Wastella. It's not happening. And you should be glad because they wouldn't be really good. But you do have them from an incredible medieval mystic by the name of Julian of Norwich. You do have them from other Christians who were able to write in such a way that they are still connected to us and inspiring, even if they lived hundreds of years ago. That's an incredible gift to give to people. And to pray, you know, it sounds like such a simple thing. And sometimes we train our children up to pray, right? You get a prayer. How many of you had a prayer that was given to you for food, right? You had a blessing before the food. And then sometimes you had a bedtime blessing. But what do you pray when you go to the bedside of somebody who's dying? What do you pray when you're with somebody and they just found out they have cancer? What do you pray when you find out that someone who is beloved to you just lost a child? What do you pray then? We have to be equipped and empowered not to have the prayer for every single occasion because none of us do but to be comfortable enough in prayer to be able to offer something. And that's a struggle because there's more to life than going to bed and eating because we are a people of relationship, not just tasks. And so prayer becomes so important. Prayer is also a conduit. It's how we nurture that relationship by being authentically vulnerable with God. Because sometimes that's the only person we feel like we can be vulnerable with. Because sometimes we have said and felt and done things that we are so ashamed of that we cannot even admit to any other human being what we are ashamed of. But God already knows. And so with God, we can be authentic. We can share those things. They don't have to be out loud or written down. They can just be the thoughts of our heads and the meditations of our hearts and God takes them and loves us anyway and more so forgives us because there wouldn't be any transformative forgiveness if it weren't that Jesus is the son of God if Jesus were like any of the rest of us he would have gotten up on the cross and died and that would have been it but instead Jesus kept promising the son of God will rise again and the Son of God will give you the same opportunity. That's why it's never too late. Your life doesn't end when your heart stops beating and when your body stops breathing, or even when your brain stops processing. Your life will be restored to you and to all of us. You're going to have new life. And we can believe that because of that title, Son of God. Only the Son of God could do that for us. There's no doctor, there's no psychologist, there's no scientist, there is no one, no religious leader that could do that for us but God. And God has done it. And we are so blessed to live in a time in the world where we don't even have to wonder. We know that Christ is real. 
And that's always a sense of trouble with people who are trying to convince you that it's not real, right? And there are people who will actively try to do that. When I was in seminary and my New Testament class, it was a survey course of the New Testament that they required us to take. And so we're in this, and our teacher gives us a book by Bart Erdman. And Bart Erdman had been a Christian, and he was a New Testament scholar. And he had set out to prove that the Bible was true, to prove that the New Testament at least was true. It's a lot harder to prove the Old Testament's true. That's been going on for a long time. So he wanted to prove that the New Testament was true. But the more he tried to prove that the Bible was true, the more he came up into problems. Because the Bible, it's really hard to prove, is objectively true. It's hard. Do we have proof that Jesus went to Bethany? Do we have proof that he walked the road to Emmaus? Do we have proof of these things? We don't. What we have is proof, is a relationship with Jesus. That's what we have. And so what ended up happening was, because he couldn't prove the Bible, the New Testament specifically, to be true, Erdman became an atheist. Which made me go, then why are we reading him? Why am I reading? Because you know what? He's still a really good scholar. He's still a really good scholar, but he's a really lousy Christian. Because instead of it being about relationship, he thought it was about being right. And if you want to be right, that is not the Christian path. <laughs> that is not the Christian path. It's not about being right. There are religions where you can be right. It's real hard in Christendom. Because even when the disciples thought they were right, Jesus was like, that's wrong. Right? I'll give you an example about Jesus prioritizing relationship. Peter, God love Peter, is trying really hard to like make sure I understand what Jesus wants. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if, not when, but if one of my brothers sins against me in the church, how many times do I have to forgive them? Seven times? Looking for a number, right? Looking for an objective number so I know whether I'm right or wrong. And what did Jesus say to him? Seven times seven. Seven times seven. You got to keep doing it. You don't get to stop. You got to keep doing it because the relationship is more important than being right. And that's hard. This is a world that doesn't really want to support your relationship with Jesus Christ because if it did, then it would never schedule anything for a Sunday. But that's not true. In fact, there are even Christians who are a little iffy on it because they're like, you went in the morning, why would you go back later? They don't understand. And then every now and then, somebody comes up to a, every house I've ever lived in. Somebody comes up to the house and wants to try to convince me to convert to their religion. They usually end up crying. It's not a good experience for them. However, they can't win, and they get frustrated. And here's why they can't win. I know Jesus. I tried very hard not to, but I know Jesus, and Jesus knows me. And I don't care whether Bart Erdman figured out how to prove that this entire book was a lie. Jesus is true. Because I know Jesus. I know him. He has loved me. He has forgiven me. God only knows why. But he continues to be in a relationship with me. When I turn aside, he turns me back. When I am on the right path, he keeps pushing me forward. I know him. There is no way that anyone can come and convince me that Jesus Christ is not my Lord and Savior. 
Because if you've ever tried to walk away from God, God makes God's self very well known in those moments. And that's the problem. You can't disprove a relationship. Prove that you loved your parent. Prove that you love your best friend. You can't. Because what you would say is proof, another would say, that's social circumstance. That's what everybody does. Everybody, you know, sends cards and says happy birthday. Everybody, you know, spends time with, you know, that's, that's not proof. But how do you know that you've loved someone? You feel it in the depths of your being. You know, you know a relationship too profound for words. And that's how you know. And that's what God is for us. Too profound for words. The book of Job, which is often cited in Lent, because there's so much suffering. I would love for us to get to a point where we don't just uh, associate suffering in Lent. I think there's an opportunity to have redemptive experience in Lent. But a lot of people go back to Job, even on Ash Wednesday, they go back to Job because he sits in ashes and he mourns. But Job spends an incredible number of chapters, 36, begging God to show up. Show up, God. Tell me why I am suffering. Tell me why things have been taken from me. I want answers. Then God shows up. And God shows up and Job is overwhelmed. So overwhelmed by the presence and the manifestation and the power of God that Job literally covers his mouth and is like, I have nothing more to say. There's nothing to say. I can't say anything. You are God. And he showed up, didn't show up in Job's time, but showed up. And that's the difference in a relationship. God will always show up for you. You may not like the exact time God shows up, or you might not like the way God shows up, but God will show up for you because God wants to be in a relationship with you. And that's the difference. A son of God, God the son, shows up for you. And we are meant to be those people. We are meant to be those people that go, you know what? You showed up for me. I can't deny it. Showed up for me. And maybe in me, he can show up for you. Maybe in us, he can show up for others. Maybe that relationship will empower us to transform this world as much as Easter transformed Christianity. Maybe, just maybe. And Lent is about possibility. Lent is about God saying, It's still not too late, and you have time, and you can do this. You can do it. And for some of us, it will look like a complete repriority, right? Reprioritizing all that we do to focus on that relationship. And for some of us, it will be trying to fit it into a very busy lifestyle. They are both valid. They are both valid. But if at the end of Lent, as we are preparing to wake up and celebrate the resurrection on Easter, if you feel that your relationship with Jesus Christ has been strengthened or transformed or even just allowed to be experienced in a new way, then you have succeeded. And God wants you to succeed because when you're in a relationship with somebody, you want them to succeed. And you can, because all of your failure is already there. 
God has paved the way in the Son of God for your success. You can do this. We can do this. And may you feel the Spirit leading you to what you can do this Lent so that Easter is a day of resurrection for your relationship with your God, for your spiritual gifts, for your disciplines, for your faith. Easter can be that this year, and it's not too late. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.